Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we've had the privilege over the last several weeks and even months to look at Jesus up close as he meets people and as they respond to him or react to him. And um, once again, he, he, never, he never ceases to amaze us in how he handles situations or what he says. It's certainly not what most people expected. What a revolutionary figure he was. What a life changer he is. And Father, as we examine this very, very important issue, as displayed in the text we're about to read, I pray that our hearts would be not only warmed, but excited to not hold on to what we have, but to give it away. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 4, this morning. My dad grew up on a farm. He was uh, part of, I should say, his parents, my grandparents, were part of the American Homestead Act, which was, there was a time in American history when the government allowed people to buy property for 25 cents an acre and settle the land. It moved people west. It took those huge empty spaces and converted them to livable areas. Well, my grandparents were a part of that, and they settled in Laramie, Wyoming, and then in Colorado after that. And so my dad grew up on farms in those areas. And as kids, he used to tell us what it was like living on a farm. And uh, I think there were probably, of all the stories I heard, there were three takeaway truths I learned about working on a farm. Hard work, long days, happy people. That's the impression that I got, that it was hard work and you worked all day long, but it was a great way of living. It was ideal. And uh, I know my dad had a way of spinning a story. It may not have been all of that, but I loved to hear the story and I loved the fact that we had a heritage on my dad's side of being farmers. Hard work, long days, happy people. Love the heritage. I heard of a family called the Smith family. They were also proud of their family heritage because their ancestors came over on the Mayflower, some of them. Uh, in their family tree were senators and pastors and Wall Street wizards. And so the Smith family wanted to compile a family history to pass on as a legacy to their children and grandchildren, etc., of the family tree and history. So they hired an author to write about the family. There was only one problem they knew about, they were sensitive about. One of their uncles had been electrocuted, executed in the electric chair. They didn't know how the author was going to write about that. The author said, don't worry about it, I'm good at spin. I'll, I'll come up with something very creative. And so when the book was finally done... The family immediately wanted to see what he wrote about Uncle George. This is what he wrote. George Smith occupied a chair of applied electronics at an important government institution. <laughs> That's creative. He was attached to his position by the strongest of ties 
And his death came as a real shock. Isn't that great? That's Uncle George. I think that a lot of Christians feel the same way whenever a preacher wants to tell them about evangelism. That it's a lot of spin that he's putting on it. He wants to make it sound really great and really fun, but it really isn't all that great and all that fun. I'm hoping that in part, what we're about to read will change the way you think about evangelism and the way you get involved in it. Um, Sharing your faith is a lot like working on a farm. Sharing your faith, doing evangelism, there'll be hard work, long days, and happy people, guaranteed. I chose this title this morning, Spiritual Farming 101, because of the very language that Jesus employs when telling his disciples about the work that he's calling them to do. He uses agricultural language. He calls it the harvest. Got to be in a farm to appreciate that. He speaks about sowing and reaping and laboring and rejoicing. So it's the same theme. Hard work, long days, happy people. There was once a farmer who wanted to be an evangelist. He was in his midlife and he was going through his midlife crisis and he thought he wanted to leave the farm and preach the gospel. And he was sitting under a tree one day looking up at the sky in between chores and he noticed what seemed to him like letters being formed by the clouds. And maybe he was reading into it, but he thought he saw two letters, P-C. And he thought, huh, P-C, what could that mean? Oh, he said, I get it. It's a sign from God. He wants me to preach Christ. He went off on that and sold his farm and started an evangelistic ministry. The only problem was the guy couldn't preach his way out of a bucket. He was just a poor speaker. And at one evening at a failed evangelistic event, one of his dear neighbors, who was also a farmer, went up to the man and whispered in his ear, maybe God was simply trying to tell you, plant corn, plant corn. All of us are called to preach Christ, whether you can speak well or not. But it's a lot like planting corn. You sow a seed... It involves more than just one person. There's other farm hands that get involved, and you will see a harvest. It just takes one seed, one conversation, one person with a changed life, and it goes a long way. And all of those elements we find in our story. We find a seed is planted, the farm hands are busy, and a harvest is gathered. We're going to begin in verse 28 and go down to verse 42. Just as a reminder of where we've been, Jesus has been having a conversation with a woman at the well of Samaria. It occupies most of the chapter. Our verses today will conclude the episode in Samaria. What Jesus does is talk to this woman, plants a seed of truth in her heart. It begins to grow, germinate, and by the end of this episode where we're at today, it's flowering, it's bringing forth fruit. She takes what she has heard and she goes into the town very excited and tells everybody else about it. In the meantime, Jesus tells his disciples some important truths about spiritual work. And then at the end of the story, a whole bunch of people in Samaria come to know the Lord. So we begin with the seed that is planted in verse 28. 
says, the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? The conversation that our Lord had with this woman was very profound. It made a great impact upon her. You'll recall that Jesus confronted her with her sin, her failure morally. She admitted to that. She didn't say, I didn't, I didn't do that. I didn't have five different husbands. She came clean and she said, you must be a prophet. And then to the people of Samaria, she said, I just spoke to a man who told me everything I ever did. They knew what she had done. She admitted what she had done. Also in the story and in the conversation, she admits her own need for refreshment. Sir, give me this water that I won't thirst again or have to come here to draw. And then finally, third, she is willing to take what she hears and tell it to other people in the village. You take those three elements and that makes us lean on the verdict that this woman was a converted woman or at least in the process of such. But here's my point. It was just one conversation that Jesus had with this woman. Here is the effect of just one conversation. He told her, and it says here that she left her water pot. Well, that's kind of funny, because why, why did she come to the well? To get water in the pot. She came with the pot. She left her pot and went away without water. Now, why? Well, two reasons come to mind. Number one, she knew she'd be coming back. She went out to get more people and bring them back. Number two, she just found something way better than water. Living water. Something changed her life, and she wanted to tell others about it. Just one conversation. Think of all those conversations you've had over the years where you've maybe shared your testimony or a word about the Lord, and then you walked away from it, and you thought, Nothing will ever happen in that person's life. It's over. They don't care. Not so fast. You don't know that. You might find out now or in heaven, great effect that took place. I'll never forget years ago, I worked on a farm. It was really my only experience on a farm. It was in Israel. I was working in the cotton fields. And one of the workers with me was a guy by the name of Tony Keene. Tony was from England. He was a Oxford, I believe, graduate of botany. He was a scientific guy, very sharp, very bright, an unbeliever, an evolutionist, and he loved mocking religious people. So guess who was his target every single day? Yep. We had very interesting and stimulating conversations. I'd tell him about the Lord, he'd mock it. He'd ask me questions about my faith and science, and I'd shoot back and I'd give him some things to think about. Finally, I gave him a book to read. I left the country, came back home. I get a phone call several months later. Hello, Skip, this is Tony Keene. Hi, Tony, how are you? He goes, I happen to be in town, but I want you to know I'm a born-again Christian. I go, no. And he told me, hey, you planted the seed. I thought about what you said. I went back to my professors. I investigated. I gave my life to Christ. Just this week on Facebook... I haven't heard from this guy, Dan Ferresi, since I was in high school. I grew up with him. Even when we were much younger, he was my neighbor down the street. I worked at his uncle's delicatessen. 
He wrote me and he said, I'm a Christian. He goes, I think it was something that you said to me in high school that planted the seed. His words, planted the seed. And I forgot about it, but now I've come to Christ. But that planted the seed. Well, truth be told, in high school I was a heathen, didn't want anything to do with Christians either. But there must have been somebody in high school that told him something. And later on somebody watered it and somebody else watered it. And eventually he came to Christ. Here's the point. One single conversation has an effect, a power. Secondly, uh, the effect of one person is part of the seed planting. Look at the end of verse 28. says, She went her way into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things I ever did. Question, could this be the Christ? Now watch this. Then they went out of the city and came to him, to Jesus. Why? Well, there must have been enough of a change already in this one woman's life to make them go, i got to check this guy out. She had a past, and they knew her past, and they had never seen the expression on her face like they saw after she came back from this conversation. Here is a changed life, and they can see it. And so they want to check it out for themselves. Now, her, her witness was pretty simple but effective. It kind of went like this. I met a guy named Jesus. It changed my life. That's it. I met a guy named Jesus. He changed my life. It's sort of like our testimony. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. And they could tell something was different. Hudson Taylor, great missionary, once wrote about how Christians like to identify with biblical characters. Some of us like to identify with Paul or Daniel or Joseph, or if you're a gal, maybe Ruth or a number of others. He said, of all the people I want to emulate, it's the woman at the well of Samaria. Here's his words. I would rather be a successor of the Samaritan woman who, while the disciples went away for food, she forgot her water pot in zeal for souls. Now, there was a missionary, Hudson Taylor, one person who was very effective. Just think of that. Jonah. He was one guy. But boy, did his life affect a whole city, the city of Nineveh. And he was even uh, not a cooperative guy, right? He didn't want to go to Nineveh. He said, I'm not going to do that. And it wasn't until he was whale vomit that he got the picture and said, okay, uncle, I'll go do it. But just one person. Paul was one person. When you put him in a jail cell or you put him on the Areopagus in Athens or the Agora of Corinth, and that one person, through a changed life, make a big difference. That's a seed being planted. A single individual transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ is noticeable and attractive. Noticeable and attractive. Last week, I spent a few hours with actor Stephen Baldwin. Remember a couple years ago or a year ago, I interviewed him on a Wednesday night. He's a believer, and uh, we were catching up on some things, and he was telling me about his... He's grown a lot in the Lord, by the way. He was telling me that he was in Paris, and he was in his hotel room, and he was down at the gym lifting weights, staying in shape on the road. And while he was there, there was a woman in the gym who noticed him and came over to him and said to him... I don't know what it is about you, but there's something different about your life. Well, he thought she was trying to pick up on him, so he held up his 
ring finger and said, I just want you to know, ma'am, I'm married. She said, no, it has nothing to do with that. I'm not trying to pick you up. I just noticed by the way you come in and just looking at you that there's something different about you. So he went for it and he said, I think what you're sensing is the Holy Spirit of God. I've given my life to Christ. And he told her about that. And he led her to the Lord in the gym. A single transformed life is noticeable and attractive. Oh, he told me another cool story. He was been a part of uh, a film shoot over in England this last year. It's a television reality show called um, Celebrity Big Brother. They take different people that are known in England, put them all in a house, and they film every day, and they make episodes out of it. There's cameras everywhere. Well, you go into this home, spend a month with these people, and it, you are allowed one luxury item, they call it. Could be a picture of your family, could be a teddy bear, I don't know, one luxury item. So he says, great, I'm, I'm going to bring my Bible. Producer says, you can't bring your Bible. We don't do that. And Baldwin said, then I won't be in your show. Oh, they went back and forth and finally they said, look, would you come if we allow you to read your Bible one hour a day? Just one hour you can have your Bible. He said, done, that's a deal. All I need is one hour. So he brought his Bible in. He was reading it. People were curious. It's all on film and put on television in the UK. Imagine this reality show. As the show progresses, it shows Baldwin holding a Bible study with all of the people gathered around him in the house. And this gets on national British television. Okay, so he's very bold. And there's this one prize fighter celebrity who's part of this household. And he's mocking and he's asking questions. But by the end of the show, Baldwin leads him to Christ on national television. One individual transformed by Jesus is noticeable and attractive. So I don't know if you're thinking of somebody that you may have shared with and you walk away from them and you go, there's no hope for that person. That, that person will never come to Christ. Don't be surprised if they end up as an evangelist. This woman was now an evangelist in the city of Sychar. It proves that God can take the worst and do this with them. John Booth was that guy for me. He was the guy in high school, football jock, didn't like church, didn't like Christians. I saw him at the high school reunion. John, what are you doing now? He goes, I'm preaching the gospel. That's the woman at Samaria. Here's the second big thing to notice is not only a seed is planted, that's the first part of spiritual farming, but also the farmhands are busy. Now, who's been busy so far preaching the gospel? Here, Jesus. And now who else? The woman. The disciples, interestingly enough, haven't even been a part of the conversation. All they care about so far is food. Understandable. They had a long journey. They're going to go get food. Verse 8. For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now when they get back, look at verse 27. At this point his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. We already covered that whole notion. And yet no one said... What do you seek or why are you talking with her? So they're all about food and social hang-ups. You know, it's like, we just got to town. See you later. We're going to go find In-N-Out. Come right back after the burger or falafel or whatever it might be. That's all they're thinking about. 
And so Jesus uses this as an opportunity to talk to them about his father's work. His father's work. And he says to them, verse 31, it says, In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. That's all they can think about. And he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? That's their level. That's where they're at. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Now, something you need to know. Verse 32, the way it's constructed in the original, there's two words that have the emphasis. The word I and the word you are emphasized. So it's like Jesus is saying, I have something you don't have. Remember doing that as a kid? I know something you don't know. So everybody goes, well, what is it? I have food you don't know about. Why did Jesus say it that way? To reel them in and get them curious so they go, okay, like what? Did somebody slip you something, some food? It worked. It got their curiosity peaked. And now he tells them about what's important. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish it. Let me tell you what he's not saying. Don't misunderstand him. He is not saying, well, really, spiritual people don't need to eat. They just need to preach. He's not saying that. What he is saying, however, is this. There is nothing more satisfying in life than doing the will of God. Now, if you have ever led somebody personally to Christ, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You say, bingo. If you know what it's like to pray with someone to receive Christ, if you know what it's like to see them change in the way they think and come around, there's nothing more satisfying. I was with my wife the first time she led someone to Christ. We were in India, of all places. And she was sharing on the street with this Indian fella, a couple of them. She spent about 20 minutes doing so, and then she said, Now, would you like to pray to receive Christ? And he, he shook his head. He did this. Now, to us, it sort of looks like a no. It looks like this. But in India, this means this. It means yes. So she would say, Now, are you ready to receive Christ? And the man went... And so she went, oh man. So she kept talking to him and telling him why he needed to receive Christ and about his sin and about God's grace and are you ready now? And he went like this and she's thinking, okay. And she spent more time telling him, finally, this is all true, finally, a dear Christian Indian brother came up and said, he is not saying no, he is saying yes, you should be praying with him. <laughs> and so she prayed with him. And she felt excited. Question, what drove Jesus in his life? What was his food? What, what, what lit his fire? It was his father's agenda. It was doing the family business of the harvest. That's what drove him. That's the point he's getting across. He has a task. He loves doing it. And he came to finish it. So when he's on the cross, one of the last words he'll say is, Father, it is finished. It's finished. Mission is accomplished. I've come to do everything you wanted me to do in representing you and paying for the sins of the world. His mission was accomplished. But 
Do you know that you have a mission on earth and I have a mission on earth? Do you know that? Uh, You know how I know that? Because you're still here on earth. That's why. You see, if God was only interested in saving you and immediately getting you to heaven, what would happen the moment you received Christ? You'd fall over dead and go to heaven. Do not pass, go, do not collect $200, go directly to heaven. But the fact that you and I are still here means that he has some plan in the family business, spiritual farming, that he wants us to get involved in. That's his will. The Bible says he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's his business. Therefore, it should be our business. Dwight L. Moody from Chicago, the evangelist, he used to love to give altar calls, always made evangelism his business. So much so that he didn't just do it from the pulpit, but he would do it individually. He was walking down Chicago Street one night, and there was a man leaning against a lamppost. Moody walks right up to him, puts his hand on his shoulder, and says, Are you a Christian, sir? The man bolted back, put his fists in the air like he wanted to fight, and he said, It's none of your business what I believe. And Moody politely said, well, sir, um, pardon me if I've offended you, but to be very frank, that is my business. And he continued sharing with the man as he so often did. Look at verse 35. Here's the paragraph I want you to notice. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap That for which you have not labored, others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. All of this is farm language, agricultural language. The physical reality of the farm, Jesus uses to speak of the spiritual reality of the condition of the world. Remember all those parables Jesus gave? Like the sower and the seed and the wheat and the tares, same terminology. Well, listen to this. In those parables, Jesus said, the field is the world. Keep that in mind. The field is the world. And he said, the good seed are the sons of the kingdom. You and I, men and women, sons and daughters of God. The field is the world. The good seed are the sons of the kingdom. And then he also said, the seed is the word of God. So here's God's method of farming. He implants his word in you and I. He sends you and I out into the world to speak his word to people of the world, just like Jesus spoke to this woman at the well of Samaria. That is spiritual farming. And by the way, when is it harvest time? According to Jesus, when is the time to be involved in this? Now. Now. For he says in verse 35, that's the whole point. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I tell you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. They are already white for harvest. Now, they had a saying back then. There's four months between seed time and harvest. That was their saying. It meant you do a lot of hard work cultivating the ground, putting in the seed. Then you can rest. It's going to rain. Let it rain. 
wait a while, and eventually it'll come up. What our Lord is saying is that is not the way it is spiritually. There is always someone who can be plucked, harvested for the kingdom. There's always somebody whose heart is ready. He says, lift up your eyes and look. Okay, now while he's saying this, listen to this. While he's saying this to his disciples, guess who's coming to meet them? All the people from the city that the woman spoke to. Look at verse 30 and you'll get the the whole thing together. Then they went out of the city and came to him. So she goes in the city, talks to them. Jesus is talking to his disciples. They're coming out. And Jesus says to his disciples, there's the harvest field. They're coming at you right now. Lift up your eyes and, and look what's happening. And no doubt, as one commentator beautifully helped us to see, these men were probably wearing white robes as Samaritans did 2,000 years ago and they're walking, kind of bouncing back and forth on the road, coming to Jesus. And it must have looked to the disciples like ripened grain of wheat at harvest time. Standing there, coming toward them. There's the harvest field. Ready and ripe. Uh, I wonder if the disciples would have been on a committee to do evangelism in Samaria, what they would have said. I mean, they're slow on the uptake, right? Let's go get some food. Jesus, have you eaten? Did somebody give them something to eat? That's what their, their whole thing is about. And, and I bet they would have said something like, especially judging from what they said in verse 27, they probably would have said, okay, this town needs to hear the gospel. They need to hear what our master has to say, but I don't think... Now is the time. I don't think they're quite ready yet. Jesus needs to spend more time in Jerusalem with the Jewish leaders or in Galilee with the Jewish settlements. But not now. Here's the point I want to make. The problem is never that the field isn't ready. The problem is always that the workers aren't ready to go to the field. It's always the problem. That's always the problem. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest field. Now, according to verse 36, 37, 38, there's all kinds of workers. There's those who sow, those who labor. Maybe that refers to those who help water. And there are those who reap different ones. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So let's ask a question. Let's not even be nebulous and talk about the church of Jesus Christ on earth. Let's just talk about this church and this service, this third service on Sunday. Of all of the people in this room right now, who is to be involved in the harvest? All of us. You knew that was coming. All of us. It's not, well, you're the preacher. We pay you to do that. Or your staff, that's what they're here for. No, there's some who reap and there's some who sow and there's some who labor. But we're all doing it together. That's really the point. Now, um, the disciples come along, as Jesus said, and uh, verse 38, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. See, they came in late on the conversation. Jesus has been laboring. The woman is talking to the people. The people are going to come to him, and they're going to believe in him. And the disciples are going to stand around and going, Boy, didn't we do great? 
It was great. And they will be able to share as part of that. But not just now. I want you to see something that I think is tremendous. Keep a marker here and go to, in your New Testament, Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. One book to the right. Acts chapter 8. Before we read, just a couple of verses. Do you recall what Jesus tells his disciples before he ascended into heaven? He said, you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you'll be preaching the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That was their commission. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts. Meanwhile, they all stayed in Jerusalem until Acts chapter 8. Now Saul was consenting to Stephen's death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Took a persecution to get them there, except the apostles. Hmm, the apostles still back in Jerusalem. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. This is round two of evangelism in Samaria. And the multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip and hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Look at verse 14. Now when the apostles were at Jerusalem, when they heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. Those were apostles. They were with Jesus, with this whole woman at the well thing. Now they go back. Verse 25, so when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Boy, do you think God has a plan for the city of Samaria and their regions or what? I mean, they had Jesus come there and the disciples watching and then again others coming to them and the disciples watching. But what a great plan. There's a very important point here that I don't want you to miss. They needed to leave where they were and go to them. They had to go to them. Farmhands need to go out into the field if they want to see a harvest. Did you know one person counted 132 individual encounters that Jesus had with people in the four Gospels? 132 different contacts Jesus made with people. Of that 132, according to this one author's count, Six of those encounters were at the temple in Jerusalem. Four of those encounters were in different synagogues. 122 were outside of the spiritual building realm, and they were out on the byways and the highways and the various jobs that people were occupying. That's where they were reached. Workers need to go out to the field. Let's conclude. Let's finish out our story in John chapter 4. A seed has been planted, the farmhands are busy, and now a harvest is gathered. Verse 39. Many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there another 48 hours, two days. And many more believe because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him 
And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. There's two things I want you to notice. Many believed. Many more believed. Many believed when a woman gave her testimony. They saw the changes. They believed. Something had to happen to change this gal, I believe. But many more believed when they had a personal encounter with the Lord. Personal testimonies are fine. Preacher sermons are fine. People's experiences are great. But real change will come when a person experiences the Lord for themselves. Maybe you were brought up in church all your life. Your parents told you about Jesus. They brought you to church. And so you come to church every week and you believe. Your wife brings you to church she got saved, so you'll come with her, and you'll come every week, and okay, I'll come to church, and I, I believe. Or a son or a daughter is transformed, and so the parents decide, let's, let's, as a family, go together. And you come to church, and you believe. But, but when you yourself come to Jesus, that's when you can say, we believe and we know that this is the Christ, the Savior of the world. By the way, isn't it interesting? The very first time Jesus is called the Savior of the world, it's by the Samaritans. Not by the Jews in Jerusalem, by the Samaritans. You're the Savior of the world. You came to us. We would have no hope unless you came to us. So question I leave you with. What is your food? What rings your bell? What motivates you? What lights a fire in your heart? I am, um, I'm sorry to say that for many Christians, it's no longer Christ or the work of Christ. It's a new hobby, a new relationship. That's what really fires them up. Have you ever experienced, you don't have to say yes, I'll tell you why in a minute, you'll see. Do you ever experience the Christian, the blahs, the blahs? You have a Bible, you read your Bible, you go to church, you read the Bible at church, you sing the songs, you do the stuff, but it's sort of like you're just in, a, in the blahs. I have a cure for the blahs. Spiritual farming is the cure guaranteed for the blahs. It will excite you, it will give you an energy like nothing else will. Charles Spurgeon said to his church, If you would just roll up your sleeves for the work and go and tell the gospel to dying men, you would find your spiritual health mightily restored. For very much of the sickness of Christian comes through their having nothing to do. All feeding and no working makes men spiritual dyspeptics. That is, someone with spiritual indigestion. They eat a lot of food, read a lot of Bible, they get a lot of sermons, but they don't spread it out. So here's the challenge this week. The challenge is to lift up your eyes and to see the harvest around us and ask the Lord, what part do you want me to play in it? And and here's the further part of the challenge. Would you plant this week just one seed? Can we covenant together that this week all of us will plant one seed? We'll engage one conversation. We'll share at least one truth about the Lord to some person. Because you'll never see a spiritual harvest unless you plant one seed. And the more the better, right? I told you my dad was a farmer. My mom had a garden. 
We had a garden, but she was the one that really kept it. And she grew a lot of stuff in it. But you know what grew in the garden? More than anything else? And it was never planted. Not weeds. Watermelons. And that's because we boys would sit out back in the summer eating watermelon and doing what with the seeds? (laughs) Spitting them over the fence in the garden. Got all the water and the fertilizer and the watermelon seeds grew. We spit a lot of seeds in that garden and got a lot of watermelons. So this week, you run into somebody at the gas station. (laughs) Somebody in line at the supermarket. Somebody next door, (laughs) spit a seed of truth. Ask them like Moody, are you a believer? Can I talk to you for just a moment? You don't know what's going to grow. Just one seed, one conversation, one person reaching one person. And you might just plant a seed and somebody else in a week or a month or a year may water it and somebody else may come along as they come to church or a crusade or watch or hear something and, and reap it. But we're all workers together. Heavenly Father, what a great thing to participate in this spiritual harvest. Bring us up to that challenge. Thank you, for Lord, for men and women who do exactly that. They do it on a weekly basis. I talk to them as part of this fellowship. They bring people to church, to different studies, to different events. And that's why we see so much glorious activity in that area. Right now, as your heads are bowed, as we have been praying, I want you just to think about what was said a few moments ago. Maybe you're uh, the person who was raised in the Christian home and your mom and dad told you all about it. And so here you are, you come to church as well. And and like the Samaritans, you, you have a belief because you saw what it did in their lives. But maybe you haven't personally come to Christ. Or a friend or a parent or a son or a daughter has taken you and you're here and you come. But you haven't personalized it. And it could be that you did personalize it at one time. You you did something. You made some prayer or commitment in your life in the past. You're not walking with the Lord today. Well, if that is the truth, then I'm going to ask you to change that. By God's grace, to change that, to change directions. It's what the Bible calls repentance. It means to change your mind and ultimately change the direction that you're going in life. And in just a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to come to Christ. Father, we pray that would be exactly the case, that men and women who have gathered here today, many of them are outside in the sun. Some are in the family room. Many are here in this auditorium, of course, or an overflow. But, Lord, I pray that there would be another part of the harvest because it is now, it is today, it is always. There's always somebody who is needing that and willing to admit their need and willing to drink of the living water. And I pray that some would come today. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we all stand? Nick's going to sing a final song, and as he does, we're not going to have you raise your hand first and close your eyes. We're just going to have you come. If you've never given your life to Christ, I don't care how nice you are or religious you are, that won't get you to heaven. Or if you made a commitment years ago, but today you are not obeying or walking with the Lord, 
If you are ready and willing to give your life to Christ, I want you to get up from where you're standing. If you're in the balcony, there's stairs to get down. If you're in the family room, you can go through this door. There's a pastor in the hub and outside who will bring you in here. If you just raise your hand. But you get up and come as we sing this song and come to the front and allow me to lead you in a prayer to receive Christ as your Savior and Lord. Just get up and come. We're going to wait for you. I'm going to wait right up here as you come and make that commitment to the Lord and have your sins forgiven and have eternal life. You get up and come. Okay, so I'm going to lead you in a prayer and I'd like you to pray this prayer out loud after me from your heart to the Lord. Sort of like wedding vows where a husband and a wife will publicly say in front of people that they make a commitment to each other. This is you giving your life away to Jesus. So you pray this prayer out loud after me from your heart to him. Lord, I give you my life. I know that I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I believe that Jesus died on a cross and that he rose from the dead. I turn from my sin. I turn my life to you. I embrace you as my Savior. I make you my Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you, and God bless.